Luke mentioned uh, Brandon, who is one of our missionaries, and his wife Darnell. I've had the honor of going to India with them a couple of times. And I remember on one trip, I think it took us three hours to get to the top of this particular mountain. And we were going up there to share the gospel. And once we got to the top of the mountain, uh, this village assembled together. And Brandon said to me, okay, Shane, share the gospel. And so about 40 people or 50 from the village are sitting on the side of a hill. And they're all staring at me to share the gospel. And you want to know what comes into your mind in a situation like that? Absolutely nothing for about a second. You just go blank. But then God is gracious and God is faithful and he gives you the words. And I shared the gospel and my translator translated and he had a translator. I was two languages removed. And I think 30 or 40 people received Christ. And that speaks to the reality that it's not about human eloquence or wisdom, but it's about the power of God and the simplicity of the gospel that saves souls. But you want to know what we found out? We found out that seven years earlier, there was a college Christian group there, like Campus Crusade for Christ, an organization like that, that spent the entire summer clearing a path from the bottom of the mountain to the top of the mountain. And it made life for the people who lived on top of the mountain in that village so much easier because they were able to, to commute back and forth, and it saved them hours. They were able to access water much more easily and food and supplies. And that college organization never saw one convert, but they did it in the name of Jesus with expressions of love. So seven years later, when we come up, we didn't build a relationship. We didn't have to prove ourselves. We just simply shared Christ, the same Christ that was first expressed to them seven years earlier by a group of college students who had so much love for them. And over the next seven years, this Jesus made their life better. So they opened up their hearts and the whole village got saved. And I shared that story as an example that I enjoyed the labors and the fruits and the sacrifices and the work and the perseverance of people who went before me seven years earlier. And in the same way, church, teens, kids, adults, all of us, let us never forget that when we wake up of a morning and we drive to where we want to drive, and we worship the God that we want to worship, and we share our faith where we want to share our faith, and we pray where we want to pray, we are enjoying the labors and the fruit and the sacrifices of people who have gone before us, who have shared their blood, because we know this much about freedom. Freedom is not free. In terms of our salvation, our freedom costs the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross. And as far as our liberty as a nation, our freedom costs many, many soldiers who sacrificed their lives on foreign fields. I, I choked up when I saw the, the soldiers coming home and hugging their families. There's many soldiers who didn't come home. And we're able to assemble today by the grace of God because of their sacrifices. Never forget, freedom is not free. Freedom is never guaranteed until the next generation. We must fight for it in each and every generation to persevere and preserve freedom for the next In fact, there are nine life cycles of any nation. Interestingly, our nation is over 200 years old, barely, and the average lifespan of a country throughout the corridors of history is 200 years, and they've all walked through this life cycle of a nation. 
Nations are usually born initially in oppression. And that oppression then leads way to spiritual awakening. And from spiritual awakening, they move, a people move into courage. And from courage, a people move into liberty. And from liberty, they move into prosperity. And from prosperity, a people move into selfishness. And from selfishness, they move into complacency. And from complacency, a nation moves into apathy. And from apathy, they move back into oppression. And I believe that our country is somewhere between seven and nine. Complacency, apathy, on our way back into oppression. Isn't it sad when something is broken? Maybe a kid wants to ride their bike, but the chain is broken. How much more tragic is it when lives are broken and families are broken and an entire nation is made up of broken people and our system is indeed broken? We are in a state of complacency and apathy as a nation towards God. And as we read in Romans chapter 1, that inevitably results in apathy towards morality, that inevitably results in uh, confusion over sexual identity, and then that inevitably leads into a loss of of, um, esteem and honor for human life, and that leads into a broken system. Let me read to you a bit about our nation and how broken that we actually are. Approximately one-third of the entire population of the United States, a third of the United States, we're talking about 110 million people, currently has sexual transmitted diseases according to the Center of Disease of Control and Prevention. 110 million people of a nation of about 320 million people have STD. Every single year, there are 20 million new STD cases in America. America has the highest STD, sexually transmitted disease infection rate, in the entire industrialized world. Americans in the 15 to 24-year-old age group account for about 15% of all new sexually transmitted disease cases each year. It costs our nation, in fact, approximately $16 billion every year to treat our sexually transmitted diseases. According to one survey, 24% of all U.S. teens that have sexually transmitted diseases say that they still continue to have unprotected sex. In Chicago, public school kindergarten teachers are now required to set aside 30 minutes a month for sex education. The United States has the highest teen pregnancy rate in the entire industrialized world. According to a study conducted by the Center for Disease and Control Prevention, approximately two-thirds of all Americans in the ages of 15 to 24 years of age have engaged in sex and oral sex and unprotected sex. At this point, one out of every four teen girls in the United States has at least one sexually transmitted disease. One in four teenage girls in the United States has an STD. According to a National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, there are 747,000 registered sex offenders in the United States today. 18% of all women in the United States say they have at some point in their lives been raped. More than 50% of all rapes take place within one mile of home. It is estimated that one out of every four girls will be sexually abused before they become adults. An astounding 30% of internet traffic now goes to pornographic websites. 70% of all men in the 18 to 24 year old age bracket visit at least one adult website each month. 
The average high school boy spends two hours on adult websites every single week. Law enforcement officials estimate about 600,000 Americans and about 65,000 Canadians are trading pornographic child pictures online. It's been estimated that about 89% of all pornography is produced in the United States. America has the highest divorce rate in the world by a good margin. For women under, under the age of 30 in the United States, more than half of all babies are being born out of wedlock. At this point, approximately one out of every three children in the United States lives at home without a father. About 18% of all abortions in the United States each year are performed by teenagers. One very shocking study found that 86% of all abortions are done for the sake of convenience. Planned Parenthood specifically targets the poor, inner-city neighborhoods. A staggering 72% of Planned Parenthood's customers have incomes that are either equal or beneath 150% of the federal poverty level, and most of these customers live in minority neighborhoods. There are 30 Planned Parenthood executives that make more than $200,000 a year. A few of them actually make more than $300,000 a year. Planned Parenthood receives hundreds of millions of dollars from the federal government every single year. The FDA is considering making it legal for doctors and scientists to create three-parent babies. During 2012, more than 85,000 military veterans were formally treated for sexual abuse that they suffered while serving in the U.S. military. According to one uh, shocking study, 22 military veterans kill themselves in in the United States every single day. In America today, there are 60 million people that abuse alcohol, and there are 22 million people that use illegal drugs. Americans spend more than $280 billion on prescription drugs each year. Right now, there are 70 million Americans that are on mind-altering drugs of one form or another. America has the highest rate of illegal drugs on the entire planet. According to the federal government, the number of heroin addicts in the United States has more than doubled since 2002. The number of heroin-related overdose deaths has risen 84% since 2010. Of all major industrialized nations, America is the most obese Corruption is rampant through our society. America leads the world in money given to fake charities. Without strong families, our young are constantly in search of an identity. According to the FBI, there are now 1.4 million gang members involved in the 33,000 active criminal gangs in the United States. The average young American will spend 10,000 hours playing video games for the age of 21. And you cannot tell me that that does not have an effect on the violence that we see running rampant with no respect for the sanctity of life. One study discovered that 88% of all Americans from the age of 8 to 18 play video games and that approximately four times as many boys are addicted to video games than are girls. And the average SAT score has been falling for years and at the level of education that our kids are receiving in most public schools, it's a total joke to the rest of the world. At this point, 15-year-olds that attend U.S. public schools do not even rank in the top half of all industrialized nations when it comes to math, science, or literacy. There are more than 3 million reports of child abuse in the United States every single year. According to a recent Pew Research Center survey, 16% of all Americans believe that humans and other living things have evolved over time, while only 33% of respondents rejected this statement. As we discard God, we discard the need for morality, we discard the need to respect life. 
Nearly one-fifth of all U.S. adults have no religious affiliation whatsoever. Back in 1972, only 7% of all U.S. adults had no religious affiliation. The number of Americans with no religious affiliation has grown by 25% over just the past five years. 29% of all U.S. adults seldom or never attend religious services. A study conducted by the Barna Group discovered that nearly 60% of all Christians from 15 years of age to 29 years of age are no longer actively involved in any church. And guys, when we read the news and we hear about a teenager running through his school with a knife on a stabbing spree, or we read about two 18-year-old boys who get a baseball bat and they beat a, a, a mentally disabled person for the sake of his electronic devices, or when we read about a dad who has a six-week-year-old baby and he puts him in the freezer to keep him quiet, or when we read about uh, the events that happened last Sunday in South Texas... Understand this, it is not about whether or not guns are, not ex- are, are, are inaccessible enough for the bad people or accessible enough for the good people or whether or not our taxes are too high or too low. It is a condition of the heart. Our nation is sick. Our nation is broken. And what we need more than anything else is a sweeping revival. But the reality of a revival is that before we can have a sweeping revival in our community in which the human heart is changed, we must first have a personal revival in our own hearts. And so we're starting a series today on the book of Nehemiah. If you have your Bibles, open it to Nehemiah. It's before Psalms and Proverbs. It's after Ezra. In fact, Ezra and Nehemiah were initially one book called Ezra, and then they broke it down into two books, Ezra 1, Ezra 2. And now it's two books entirely, the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah. We're starting a series on the book of Nehemiah because so often when we read the news and when we hear statistics like this, we think to ourselves, what can one person do? Oh, What can one person do? One person who's fully consecrated to Christ, one person who's fully surrendered to Christ can change the world. This was the case with Nehemiah, but not alone. We have to do this together as a church family. Nehemiah chapter 1. This series is called Better Together because together as a church family we can change our community and a changed community can change our city a changed city can change the country a changed country can change the world we are better together and together uh, this morning's title is we will become a wildfire of hope but how do we become a wildfire of hope well first and this is my challenge to you i have three challenges to you and to myself this morning How do we become a wildfire of hope so that we can change the world? Because again, it's not about whether or not firearms are inaccessible enough for bad people or accessible enough for good people or our taxes are too high or too low. We have a heart condition as a people. We've got a heart condition as a nation. And we are in desperate need of a sweeping revival. And so I have three challenges for you and I have three challenges for me. I don't care if you're in the auditorium and you're 10 years old or I don't care if you're in the auditorium and you're 90 years old. It's going to require all of us now. First, we must absorb the burdens of heaven. We must absorb the burdens of heaven. Nehemiah chapter 1, and let's start in verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of uh, Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, that's in Persia, 
uh, at this particular time in Israel's history, they were in exile. In 586 B.C., they were overrun by the Babylonians, modern-day Iraq. Uh, they tore down the walls, they tore down the temple, and they took all of the, 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 the young leaders of the nation, and they imported them into Iraq, Babylon. And this captivity was prophesied through the prophet Jeremiah that it would last 70 years. Sometime throughout Babylonians' reign, the Persians, Iran, overthrew the Babylonians, Iraq. However, they inherited the exiles, the, the, the slaves who are now in Persia. And at this point of the writing of Nehemiah, there have been three, two uh, dispatchments of Hebrews back into the homeland, uh, remnants, to try to get things going again. The first dispatchment was under the leadership of Zerubbabel, and, and he, 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 he took a remnant back, and he created some spiritual revival. And then the second dispatchment was under the leadership of, of, of Ezra, and the, the first dispatchment built the temple and rebuilt the temple, and the second dispatchment went back, and they were trying to get their nation back underway. And so here we go, picking up with Nehemiah, Verse 2 of chapter 1. That Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. They, they went to the homeland to see how things were going. And they came back. And Nehemiah is Jewish, and he has a heart for his people. He has a heart for God. And so having a heart for God, you're going to have a heart for the things that God has a heart for. And God loves his people, this remnant. And so he asks them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem, those who were still there, even, even after they were run over by the Babylonians, and those who went back to try to get things going. And he said, how is it going back there? And they said to me in verse 3, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. That means that they don't have the capacity for a military. They don't have the capacity for a government. They don't have the, the, the capacity to protect themselves. That means they can try growing crops in this rural area, and then bandits all around them are just going to ransack and, and steal everything they have. And there's going to be violence, and there's going to be corruption. And he says, it's a, it's a horrible situation. The people there are living in fear. They're living in insecurity. They're living in danger. And they're the joke of the entire world. Verse 4, as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. Do you have the capacity to feel everything that's wrong with the world? When you see the junk that's happening on TV and in the news and when you hear about it and when you look around and you, and you see everything that's wrong around you, do you have the capacity to feel it? Or has your heart grown cold and has your heart grown cynical and has your heart grown calloused? The first step in changing the world around us, the first step as a church family in being a sweeping revival is that we absorb the burdens of heaven. And this is what a vision is. Heaven's burdens become our visions when we allow ourselves to feel what God feels. 
as Jesus rode into Jerusalem and he saw a city that was going to be wiped out by, by the Romans in 70 AD. And he knew that they weren't going to place their faith in him as the Messiah. One, his city would be wiped out. But two, he knew their eternal condition and he wept. He shed tears. He cried He cried his eyes out, and he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you unto myself as a mother hen gathers her chicks. If we spend most of our time watching TV, scrolling social media, being cynical about whoever our political opponents or or, or philosophical ways are, and being sarcastic, we're never going to catch the burden of heaven. We have to shut ourselves up in our prayer closet. We have to seek the face of God. And when we do that, we are freed from the burdens of this earth. The things of this earth, as the hymn says, grow strangely dim, and our fears and our anxieties wash away. We don't feel that we have to keep up with the Joneses. We don't have this sense of materialism. We don't have this sense of insecurity and insufficiencies. We are liberated from the things that enslave others on this earth, but we are enslaved by the burdens of heaven, and that becomes our vision. As we read in Psalm chapter 37, verse 4, Delight yourself in the Lord. This is seeking the face of God, shutting yourself up in your prayer closet, crying your eyes out. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. In other words, you seek the face of God, and then eventually your heart will start beating in sync with God's heart. And this world is absolutely dying for a man, woman, boy, or girl to be set on fire with passion, with a vision. Because they've sought the the, the face of God and they've received the burdens of heaven. And it's something that's not a reality in this world. It's something that's broken in this world. But it's something that God wants to make a reality. It's something that God wants to heal. It's something that's lost in this world. And it's something that God wants to be found. It's a passion in God's heart. And he will give that passion to you. As you seek the face of God, your heart will start beating in sync with God's heart. And you'll be on fire. Fire. You will be set ablaze with a vision. You'll be set ablaze with a burden. Do you have the capacity to feel everything that is wrong with this world? Second, pray with passion. Pray with fervor. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And if this were the end of the sermon, it would be a miserable sermon because you would just be, uh, you, you would just be enslaved by the burdens of heaven and it would be a helpless and hopeless situation because you would feel everything that's wrong and lost and hurting and broken in this world. But it's not a period, it's a comma. And he goes on to write, And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And he goes on to pray an incredible prayer. And we're going to take lessons from this prayer. A hell-bent world, and we are in a hell-bent world, it will never be set straight, it will never be set right, it will never be transformed, it will never be made right, it will never be healed, it will never be found if we feel the burdens of everything that's wrong around us and don't pray or pray prayers without groaning. If we simply pray pray the same kind of prayers that most of us will pray when we go to lunch and just say, God, thanks for this food, and we make it a short prayer and we dive in. 
I'm guilty of that. I've never, never been accused of having a long food prayer. In fact, I was eating a few weeks ago, and, and there, we were with some families, and, and I said, okay, let's pray. And I prayed, and one of the little girls, she's about five years old, she said, wow, that was a really short prayer. We pray a lot longer at home. I said, well, I, I usually don't pray long food prayers because I'm hungry. Well, those kind of food prayers aren't going to change the world. We've got to feel everything that's wrong with the world, but then we have to move into the next level. We have to pray with fervor. We have to pray with passion. We have to pray with fasting. Nehemiah goes on to say, And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Have you ever sensed something that was so broken? Maybe it's broken emotions. Maybe it's a broken family. Maybe it's a broken family member. Maybe it's a broken ministry or perhaps a broken nation. And have you ever sensed that burden so intensely that you didn't want food? You would rather pray than, 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 than have your next meal. This was the case of Nehemiah. So he began praying with fervor, praying with passion. He began praying and fasting. We cannot change the world if we pray without fasting. We can't change the world if we pray without passion, if we pray without sacrificing, if we pray dry-eyed. A dry-eyed church, guys, a dry-eyed church will never, it will never, it will never change our community because we're not really feeling the, the hurts and feeling everything that's wrong with the world. We'll gripe at lost people, we'll yell at them, we'll be cynical, we'll be sarcastic, but until we fast and pray and our eyes are no longer dry, and our praying is akin to groaning, oh, only then as a collective people will will we be part of this sweeping wildfire to change the world. And so how do we pray like this? One, Nehemiah gives us the example that we confess personal sins. In verse 6 and 7. As he's fasting and praying and grieving about everything that's broken around him. And he says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servants. That I now may pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel. Which we have sinned against you, even I in my father's house, we have sinned. We've acted corruptly against you. We've not kept commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. As I read how broken our nation is, as I read how sick the heart of our nation is, it's almost laughable when we stand up and we say, and God bless America, how could he? How could he bless our nation as sick and corrupted and indifferent towards him and callous and complacent and apathetic toward him? How could he bless us? Ruth Bell Graham said 50 years ago, if God doesn't judge America soon, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. How much more so is that true now? We've got to feel what's wrong, and we have to feel it to the extent that we fast and pray and lose sleep. Instead of griping about everything that's wrong, let's groan in our spirit. Instead of complaining about it, let's call upon the one who can change hearts. 
The answer is not in Washington with higher or lower taxes, whatever your political persuasion may be. The answer is in a changed heart of a nation because of a church that's no longer dry-eyed. But we feel what God feels, and that's our vision, and it keeps us up at night, and we repent of our sins. We will never be part of a sweeping revival until we're first part of a personal revival, either in our prayer closet or here at the altar. We must repent of our sins. And then claim God's promises. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the rhema word of God. There is the, there's the grafe word, the logos word, and the rhema word, that utterance that God gave you. From, from, from fasting and praying and repenting of sin, Nehemiah went to pray a rhema word of God. He said, remember the word? You see, prayer is not, is not talking God out of some reluctance to answer it. It's laying hold of his willingness by praying the word of God. Because when we pray the word of God, we're praying the will of God. And so we pray with complete certainty that what we're asking is going to be a reality. And Nehemiah laid hold of God's willingness by praying his will, by praying his word. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. You, you, you said, God... If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven from there, I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you've redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. He's calling God on his word, and God likes that. He's saying, God, you said this. Are you a liar? Or are you a truth teller? You said it, so I'm praying it, and I'm asking you to do it. And so we have to feel what's broken. We have to fast and pray. We have to repent of our own sins, and we have to claim God's word. And God's word says, If my people, who were called by my name, humble themselves. And throughout the Old Testament, when we see humble and prayer mentioned together, humbling ourselves is usually there's a connotation of fasting with it. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, we have to fast, we have to pray, we have to turn from our wicked, wicked ways, we have to call upon God to heal our land, and God says, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. What's wrong with our nation will never be fixed from politicians or the White House. What's wrong with our nation will only be fixed by the Spirit of God moving through the people of God, because we are no longer dry-eyed when we pray, we feel what's broken, we repent of our own sins, and we fast and pray, and we storm the the throne room of God with the promise from God, saying, God, you said it, and I'm repenting, and I'm turning from my sins, and I'm seeking your face, and I'm holding you to your word, so I'm asking for a sweeping revival to start in me, and my family, and my church, and my community, city, and nation. And this is what God is looking for. Scriptures tell us that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. Watch this. To give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Cassidy, would you come on up? And 
I want to lead you guys in a time of, of repentance. If you would stand with me, please. I believe that the stakes are too high, guys. I don't want this just to be a sermon where you guys are like, hey, that was a good sermon. And then we go to lunch and our community remains unaffected. Or we go home and we watch our news stations and we just complain about the other side. We've got to storm the throne room of heaven with tears, feeling what's wrong with the world. It's a broken world. It's a sick nation. We've got to feel it. We've got to repent of our own sins. We've got to fast. We've got to pray. We've got to hold God to his word. And God likes that, by the way. And we said, God, you said if we do this, you will do that. If we fast, if we pray, if we turn from our sins, and if we storm the throne room of heaven, you will give us a sweeping revival in our hearts, and our families, and our church, and our community, and the world. Let it start with us. The world is in desperate need of a sweeping revival, but a sweeping revival must always begin with a personal revival. Let it begin with us. This is from a book by Charles Finney on how to experience this sweeping revival in our own life and how to repent of our own sins. And so I'm just going to read some, some, some things to you guys. And if you can resonate with it, if you can relate to it, then I want to invite you to repent of it. But we don't just repent. We, we replace what we had with the Spirit of God and a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. The, the, the medication, the, the large percentage of people who are on mind-altering medication is baffling. You know what? You would experience so much joy. You would experience the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is always accompanied by peace, joy, peace, which washes away anxiety, joy, which washes away depression. You would experience peace, joy, and love if you would repent and call out to be filled with the Holy Spirit and seek the face of God every day and have a daily relationship with Christ. There's sins of omission. This is things that we should be doing that we're not doing. One, there's ingratitude, unthankfulness. Take this sin, for example, ingratitude, and write down under the heading, all the times you can remember where you've received great blessings and favors from God, which you've never even given thanks. Oh, we're a blessed people. We are a blessed people. But are we a grateful people? You are so blessed. You have the capacity to walk in here, worship the one true God without fear, and, 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 and the capacity to stand on your feet. You are a blessed person, but are you a grateful person? There's the sin of a lack of love for God. The greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Think of how grieved and alarmed you'd be if you suddenly realized a great lack of affection for your wife or husband or children. But have you lost this affection for God? Or what about neglect of the Bible? Put down the cases where for perhaps weeks 
or longer, maybe months. You've neglected the Word of God. You haven't opened it up. There's been no pleasure in your reading. Or if you have read it, it's just been an obligation. Maybe you read a bit to not feel guilty, but you didn't really retain it or long to be transformed by it. Or how about the sin of unbelief? Recall the instances in which you virtually charged the God of truth with lying by your unbelief of His express promises and declarations. And with unbelief comes indifference to God and walking in a way that we realize that we are accountable to God. Or the sin of lack of prayer. Think of all the times you've neglected private prayer, family prayer, group prayer, prayer meetings. It's just purely pride. The level of our pride and arrogance is in direct proportion to our prayerlessness. As prayerlessness goes down, pride goes up. We think we've got it. We think we don't need God's direction or provision or watch care. As humility goes up, prayer goes up. Pride goes down as prayer goes up. How about neglect of fellowship? When you have allowed yourself to make small and foolish excuses that have prevented you from attending the assembly of believers... Or you approach church as if it's a buffet and you're a connoisseur instead of rolling up your sleeves and committing to a local church family. Or how about the manner in which you performed your spiritual duties? God's given you spiritual gifts, but have you been stewarding them? Have you been serving in the body of Christ? King David said, I would, be a, I would rather be an usher in the house of God than a king. It's more honorable to be an usher for God than a king of men. Or how about a lack of love for souls? Look around at all your friends and relatives and think of how little compassion you have for them. You've seen them going straight to hell, and it seems as though you didn't even care. How many days have there been when you failed to make their, their, their lost condition the subject of even a single fervent prayer? Or prove any desire for their salvation? What about a lack of care for the poor and lost in foreign lands? You've not cared about them enough to even attempt to learn of their condition. You avoid mission organizations, mission meetings, mission magazines, etc. Or how about the neglect of family duties? Think of how you've lived before your family, how, how you have prayed, what an example you have set before them. How have you lived before your family? What direct efforts do you habitually make for their spiritual welfare? Or lack of watchfulness over your witness? How many times have you failed to take your words and actions seriously? How often have you entirely neglected to watch your conduct and speech and have been off your guard, have sinned before the world, the church, and before God? Or how about your neglect to watch over your brethren, your Christian brethren? How often have you broken covenant, broken commitment, broken membership? How about your neglect of self-denial? Jesus said, take up your cross and follow. And yet there are many Christians who are willing to do most, almost anything in religion that does not require self-denial. I'll do it as long as it doesn't cost me any time, any inconvenience, any sacrifice, any courage. Or how about sins of omission? Well, those are sins, sins of omission. How about sins of commission? What about the love of things and possessions? What has been the state of your heart considering your worldly possessions? Have you looked at them as really yours or that you are stewarding them and they belong to God? What about vanity? How many times have you spent more time decorating your body to go to church than you have 
preparing your heart and mind to worship the King of Kings, the Creator of all things, the Redeemer of our soul. What about envy? Look at the cases in which you were jealous of those who are in a higher position than you, or perhaps you've envied those who've been more talented, more useful than you. How about bitterness? Recall all the instances in which you've harbored a grudge, a bitter spirit towards someone, or spoken of Christians in a manner completely devoid of love. Or how about slander or gossip? Think of all the times you've spoken behind people's backs of their faults, real or supposed, or, 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 or not, unnecessarily or without cause. This is slander. What about lying? Understanding what lying is. Any form of designed, designed deception is lying. What about cheating? Set down all the cases where you've dealt with anyone in a way you yourself would not like to be dealt with. What about hypocrisy? For example, in your prayers and confessions to God, set down all the times in which you've prayed for things you didn't really want. What about robbing God? Think of all the instances in which you've totally misspent your time squandering the hours which God gave you to serve Him and save souls, precious time wasted in vain amusement, worldly conversation, in reading worldly novels, or even doing nothing, cases when you've misused your talents and ability to think, think of how you've squandered God's money on lusts, or spent it for things in which you really didn't need, which didn't contribute to your health, comfort, or, youth, or usefulness. What about bad temper? Perhaps you've abused your wife, your children, your family, employees, or neighbors. What about hindering others from being useful? You've not only robbed God of your own talents, but you've tied the hands of somebody else. What a wicked servant is he who not only is useless himself, but hinders the rest. This is done sometimes by taking their time needlessly. Though you've played into the hands of Satan and not only proved yourself to be a vagabond, but prevented others from serving the Lord as well. We could go on and on. But the thing is, God is looking for a completely surrendered heart. For somebody who will repent of everything that's inconsistent with his holiness, love, grace, and passion for his church and a lost and dying world. I have no doubt that, that when you saw the news, just like I did last week, I mean, it, it was horrifying. But there's only one solution. And again, it's not in Washington. It's in the church. We've got to fast. And I would like to call a fast. I would like to call a 21-day fast. Fast from food, if you like. Fast, do, do what Daniel did. He only ate vegetables. Um, maybe fast from social media for 21 days. Fast from cigarettes. Whatever it is, pray about it. But I'd like to call a fast. I'd like to start it tomorrow. Whatever you want to fast from, go for it. And every time you sense that addiction, that hunger pain, you want to scroll social media, whatever it is that you're fast fasting from, every time you sense that, man, find a closet somewhere, shut yourself up, and cry your eyes out. Repent of your own sins and pray for your nation. And pray, God, give our nation a sweeping revival. And I beg you, let it start with me. God is looking the whole world over for somebody who's totally consecrated to him. Oh, let it be us. Let it be now. This is not the kind of thing that we need to procrastinate about. Let it be us. Let it be now. So I want to invite you to pray, to repent, to pray for your nation, to pray for your church, 
pray for your leaders, to pray for this nation's sick, contorted soul to be healed and made whole. Pray for a sweeping revival to start in you. All right, guys, let's respond, and the altars are open.